Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. I'm Odie. I'm Odie. not a specialist. <laughs> uh, you're, you're great to have you. You're my foil, and we, I love our interactions. I want to welcome all of you back uh, for part two of, of, of where we began last week. Our topic was using shame as the signal to the self, and we're going to be moving into how we can transform shame today. But before we do that, a few uh, things by way of announcement. First of all, in honor of Austin here, uh, my co-producer is Austin Armstrong, Franz Salvatierra. You've met Odie uh, Martinez. Uh, these three guys keep things moving today and every day. And uh, uh, I want to encourage you <clears throat> to um, interact with us today online. If you're, if you're seeing this through the Facebook, uh, you can leave uh, uh, the Facebook group is Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can leave <clears throat> comments or questions as we, as we go forward today, and I encourage you to do that. Also encourage you to reach out to friends and let them know about what we do every, uh, every uh, Wednesday. So happy to have you here. I wanted to say just a few things personally today. Um, by way of context as we move into uh, talking about uh, transforming shame. Um, first of all is that for the last uh, almost three months I've, I've, I've been in and out of pretty severe illness. I had, uh, and I've talked about it here, I had shoulder surgery about three months ago and unfortunately <clears throat> about six weeks into that I developed a very serious infection. It's referred to as sepsis and uh, it kills people. Uh, one out of three people that get sepsis die. Mm -hmm. And uh, one out of two people that have it as bad as I got it die. And so I'm glad I'm in the half that live. Yeah. I'm really <laughs> grateful for that. But I know that there's been some times I've missed in the last few weeks, and it's really owing to uh, illness and just recuperating from the sepsis. Uh, uh, the good news is that they went in and did a second surgery uh, on my shoulder, the same shoulder that had the first operation, his rotator cuff. And they removed uh, much of the infection, including with the pins or the anchors that were into my shoulder. So the good news is that I'm alive. The bad news is that my shoulder's back to square one. <laughs> so, so my orthopedist uh, in the last couple of weeks suggested that we consider a third surgery, at which point I strangled him. <laughs> no, he's no longer with us. Uh, so at any rate, uh, we're going to wait on the third surgery for right now. But I, I, I wanted to share that as a backdrop to something that I brought in today is that this past Monday, uh, two days ago, was my, my birthday. It's my 63rd birthday. Mm -hmm. It's particularly poignant to me because I'm alive. Mm -hmm. It's nice to celebrate your birthday alive, and I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. And I received a lot of gifts, uh, including from people that are involved in uh, Facebook community uh, and other communities that I'm involved in. And I received a card, and she doesn't know I'm going to comment on this, but it was easily one of the most touching gifts I could have received. And I want to share with you, one of our weekly participants who is also very gracious in sharing questions and comments is uh, my dear friend Angela. And I want to thank Angela for this incredibly thoughtful card that she sent. I hope that you can see this. It, it includes on the front a poem by the uh, Persian poet Hafiz. Can you see that? Okay. I'll hold it closer. That would mean that I have a shoulder that can... Okay, there we go. It's, it's a really beautiful card. Hafiz was a, a contemporary of Rumi in terms of uh, Persian poetry that continues to live uh, into the 20th century. Uh, both, of, both of them are poets that are widely read in the United States, which is pretty crazy when you think they originated from Turkey and Afghanistan. Right. Anyway, the cover of this uh, uh, card, in case you couldn't read it, is there are so many gifts still unopened from your birthday. That's from Hafiz, H-A-F-I-Z. 
there are so many gifts still unopened from your birthday. And Angela, I want to thank you. The card uh, really touched me and the comments that you made inside. And I'll tell you one of the places that the card went for me, it went a lot of different places, very moved by this, was I already talked about my gratitude for being able to celebrate my 63rd birthday. Mm -hmm. um, is that whether it's you, Angela, or me, or any of us as human beings, we all struggle, struggle, from, struggle with different kinds of enslavement. Yeah. And as we've talked before, enslavement is, is the English root of the Latin term for addiction. Well, I'm getting that all backwards. The Latin term that addiction comes from is addictus. And addictus in Latin simply means slave. Yeah. So addiction means to be enslaved. And we all know about different kinds of enslavement. In fact, most of us... Uh, if we're not addicted to substance, are addicted uh, or include other addictions to various behaviors. You've been very generous, Odie, and I've meant a lot to me for you to share some of your own struggles with enslavement. Yeah, and I wanted to be transparent with you ab mm -hmm. about ways that I think that we're all in the soup together on this. It means a lot to me yeah. that you do that. Thank you. Um, and in the context of that, Angela, and to all of our listeners, I really do feel like the poem is apropos of all of us. I take it personally and really appreciate it. But there are so many un uh, there are so many gifts still unopened mm. for all of our lives. And one of the things that enslavement does, whether it's in relationship for you with your wife mm. or you and your career, Odie, mm. and the same for me, is it keeps those gifts under a bushel basket and they don't get expressed. Mm. And so when I sit today right before I come here with the group at Beginnings Treatment Center of the Men, who yeah. I love so dearly, the goal there is to, I'm going to start crying because I feel this so deeply. The goal there is to do whatever we can to remove barriers or impediments mm. to your gifts being expressed, my gifts, their gifts. Yeah. And so I think the poem is really a birthday poem for all of us. I was also thinking, Angela, that it's very timely because I'm coming up. Well, let me make an announcement. Is that next Wednesday we will not be meeting. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, came in today, and everyone here in the studio thought that that was today. So we are meeting today, Austin and Franz and Odie, here we are. And these guys are amazing. We went from no studio to like, here we are on air within a few minutes. It's crazy. We will not be meeting next week, and I'll tell you why, is that um, uh, I've been invited to address the American Pharmacists Association next week. They have their annual conference. It happens to be in Salt Lake City. I'll be flying to Salt Lake City on Wednesday and, and uh, will not be here. I'll be flying out about the same time that we'd be meeting, in fact. Mm. And uh, I want, to, uh, many of you have read about this. I put a, a, a post on my Facebook. My Facebook is under Robert Weathers. That's my given name. And you can, you can find this post there if you're interested in reading more of the details. But uh, every year, they, the American Pharmacists Association includes an institute on alcoholism and drug dependency. And they've invited me to present not one, but two workshops, which I'm incredibly honored to be uh, involved in this. The first one is on today's topic. The first one is the title of it. They supplied the title. I, I supplied the content. The title mm. is Finding Grace. Mm. Okay. And it's an introduction to, to uh, uh, addiction and recovery. Oh. And the material that we've been talking about here, for, especially for the last uh, several weeks running on shame, mm -hmm. we'll be talking about grace today, uh, is directly pertinent to this presentation. So next Thursday morning, I'll be doing the kickoff workshop of the whole conference. will be on finding grace, which I think is incredible. Yeah, that's great. The very next day, I'll be doing another workshop on how to integrate family resources in terms of family therapy, for example, mm -hmm. with addiction counseling, particularly from 12-step uh, support groups. And how do these two 
twin resources communicate to one another and work with not only individuals in recovery like myself, but also our family members, our loved ones, and how do we integrate that therapy? It may sound like kind of a boring topic. I find it really fascinating because yeah. there's all kinds of collisions that happen between the worldview of most typical recovery workers, addiction counselors, and those of therapists, particularly family therapists. And I'm really wanting to provide a bridge. In fact, that's the title of this particular presentation. Again, given to me by the American Pharmacists Association, and I get to be creative with it. The mm -hmm. title of this is Bridging the Gap. And we're really looking at bridging the gap between the right hand and the left hand here. How can we provide services that are complementary and not antagonistic? So I'll be there next week. And it just so happens, I thought of this, Angela, I'm thinking of you and your birthday card, is that next week while I'm presenting at this American Pharmacists Association will be the, my sixth birthday of, of uh, recovery beginning June 1st, 2012. Nice. That's my recovery date. And I find that really timely. I'm going to remember to mention this when I'm up there in front of 400 pharmacists all around. <laughs> <laughs> country is that how uh, synchronistic, how beautifully uh, providential it is that I'm yeah uh, in this uh, in this situation on my birthday. It's awesome. So there's different birthdays. Yeah. There's this <laughs> birthday. Thank you very much, Angela. And there's next week's birthday, which I'll be celebrating with a whole room full of pharmacists. Mm. <laughs> there's a funny backstory. When I was in high school, my first part-time job was working at a pharmacy, the local pharmacy. Mm. In, uh, I, I grew up in Central California. I lived in Visalia. It was Mixtures Pharmacy. And I loved that job. I could work it around my other involvements. I was active in sports and in music and had a girlfriend and was involved in church. And mm. it, they had a very flexible schedule. So I worked there for two or three years, at the end of which the pharmacist, uh, Bob Pullen said he'd like to send me to pharmacy school. Mm. He'd gone to USC, University of Southern California here in Los Angeles, and he got his doctorate in pharmacy. And he says, I'd like you to become a doctor of pharmacy. And I contemplated that for a while. It was a really quite an honor. Yeah. Instead, I decided to get into psychology, and there's a whole <laughs> other story there. But I've always had this deep affection for pharmacy and for mm. pharmacists. And so there's something about me being invited by this organization to speak to them, which I've never spoken to before. Certainly spoken to psychologists and psychiatrists. And, and mental health workers, you know, marriage and family therapists and so on of all stripes, which I love doing. But this will be an interesting group to be speaking to, and it's really full circle for me. I was me. about to say, so, that's yeah, really full yeah. circle. Yeah, we can go back so. almost 50 years to when I worked at Mixtures Pharmacy yeah. in Visalia, <laughs> and I feel very honoring of the memory of Bob Poland and Harold Fink were the two pharmacists there, so mm -hmm. I'm very happy to be coming back. That's great. <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be happy for me, I'm sure of it. Yeah. So... So that's a little bit of the backdrop for today and for the last week and for next week as well. So join us today then. Odie and I will be, will be completing what we started last week, which was introducing the idea of using shame as a signal to the self. We, we talked about how it is. I'm just going to review real quickly some of the high points. We talked about how it is that there are gifts in shame. The only way that it makes sense to talk about gifts in shame is to differentiate our definition of shame. Uh, to make a distinction between what some people call healthy shame, which I prefer to call rightful guilt. Mm. I think one, one aspect of when we do something wrong and feel bad, I think that's important. I think it's important that we feel that. Yeah. And I think of that as rightful guilt. And we'll be, we'll be talking more into that today for sure. Versus, on the other hand, what some people call unhealthy shame, which I call toxic shame. Mm. And so mm -hmm. when I use the term, just to cut to the chase, when I use the term shame and guilt, that's the distinction I make. Yeah. And as we talked about last week, in fact, the group before we came in here today, uh, I asked for the definition, and, and uh, one of the gentlemen in the group gave the same definition, and it was, it was basically, shame tells me that I am 100% a foul-up, 
Mm-hmm. And guilt <laughs> tells me that I fouled up. Right. And that and that distinction makes a huge amount of difference. Mm-hmm. We talked about that last week. If we can learn how to separate what I've done from who I am, mm-hmm. that's an important piece. And why does that matter? Is that shame in terms of the biology of the brain, shame actually activates the freeze response. You've heard of fight or flight reaction. It's actually fight, flight, or freeze. Right. And it's a midbrain phenomenon, which basically when shame kicks in, it actually shuts down or usurps the frontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which is the part of us that makes moral decisions. So ironically, if I'm ashamed, I won't be able to correct my moral indiscretion. If I've stepped on your foot, for example, shame won't permit me to acknowledge that I stepped on your foot. In fact, it'll keep us in in a ruptured state, Mm. whereas guilt moves me towards you, shame moves me away from you. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? With shame, we want to crawl into a hole. And that's really what the brain does. It just shuts down. It wants to freeze. It Mm -hmm. wants to play dead. And guilt is a social emotion where, with guilt, I apologize to you and I also commit to you that I won't do it again. Mm. And so it moves me towards you. So you can see why this distinction isn't just semantic. It's really important behaviorally. So we covered that last week. We had tons of questions and comments coming in. (laughs) I'd be happy to entertain comments and questions today with Odie here. But where we left off last week was the very pregnant question, Franz? What's to be done? <laughs> What's to be done about, about this shame that afflicts us and that can paralyze us? What do we do with that? Well, I want to unpack that today, and we'll have another exercise today as well. But I want to start by unpacking that by, by referring to the uh, 20th century uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, the significance of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not only was he one of the leading intellectuals of the first half of the 20th century, he was a theologian and, and academic, a professor in, I believe it was in Bonn uh, in, in, uh, in Germany. I can't remember for sure, but that's what comes to mind. And uh, uh, the poignancy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story is that he was a profoundly Christian, a pastor as well as a theologian. And with the rise of Hitler's power, but I get the chills with this every time. Bonhoeffer became part of the resistance to the Third Reich, and mm-hmm. uh, and he actually was involved in establishing a plot to assassinate Hitler. Wow. And one of the painful, painful chapters in in all of uh, the Holocaust and World War II is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his his uh, uh, confederates they were all discovered. In the weeks right before the end of the war, I mean, it's literally right down yeah. to the end of the war. They, their assassination attempt was foiled. They were discovered, and they were all executed mm. within just a, a week or two of the liberation of, yeah. of Europe. And, and Hitler committed suicide during this time, so they were executed. And uh, it's, it's a double pain. It's painful to see that they were executed for doing what came to be seen as the right thing. Right. And, then, and then secondly, that... that the world uh, was deprived of his genius mm. for the for the next fifty years because he was he was uh, in his prime. You can see in the photograph that I have here. Is there, there's a photograph. He was a, he was a, he was a young man and made a huge impact. He wrote scores of books. When I was in graduate school, I took a number of courses on Bonhoeffer. I was quite captivated. But I took one whole course that just focused on the ethics of Bonhoeffer, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Sounds good. So. Bonhoeffer made a distinction between what he called cheap grace and costly grace. And I want to unpack that today in the context of what you and I have been talking about, Odie, mm-hmm. and look at it from a psychological frame. He establishes it more from a theological or philosophical frame, and both are relevant here. Hmm. So what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, he has a book called The Cost of Discipleship. 
And in this book, he elaborates this distinction. It's a very powerful book. And you don't need to be Christian to get tremendous value out of it because it's an inspiring book in terms of living from a deep ethical center. He was profoundly Christian and he uses Christian metaphors. It's a very powerful book for sure. Mm -hmm. And in this distinction between cheap grace and, and, and uh, costly grace, I want to start by discussing what he means by cheap grace. In cheap grace, it would be my stepping on Odie's foot and having no guilt. In other words, there's no rightful guilt. I should rightfully feel guilty for doing that. Hmm. And so if I ask you for forgiveness, oh, I'm so sorry, and don't have any intention of changing that, and you forgive me, that's what he means by cheap grace. Okay. So I have no intention of changing. I'm asking you for forgiveness. Forgiveness is hollow at that point, right? Yeah. It's like, why would I forgive you, Bob? You're going to step on my foot again. <laughs> and... and, and um, all of us are human beings that have asked for forgiveness or maybe forgiven ourselves mm. when we have no intention of changing. Yeah. This comes up a lot in the frame of addiction. In fact, it came up today in our group where one individual said that as part of his addiction, um, he struggled He struggled with turning the ship around yeah. in terms of his behavior. And I said the difference it makes is your intention. Mm. If your intention is to change your behavior, addiction is extremely challenging to turn that around because it is self-perpetuating. There's an inertia to addiction, mm. biologically as well as psychologically. But if your intention is to turn that around and to, uh, to recover, even if there are mistakes along the way, if you pick yourself up and continue onward, that's the key. And I said, if you and I said all of us in this room, including myself, have said to loved ones, I won't do that again, mm. knowing full well that we will do it again. Yeah. That would be cheap grace. That would be asking for cheap grace. Mm. Whereas if I've, if I've hurt you or wronged you, and there's no active addict that hasn't betrayed trust, yeah. hasn't uh, hurt, hasn't lied, etc., is that if, if I'm fed up with that and I'm going to do all that I can in my, in my capacity to change my life, then I can come to you and I can say, I'm really sorry that I've done that. Yeah. I'm doing all I can to not do that again. Please forgive me. And that moves us then into the second conversation, which is talking about costly grace. Costly grace, this is, this is the Bob Weathers mat mathematics of this. Costly grace equals rightful guilt. So now I feel rightfully guilty for having betrayed or hurt you. Mm -hmm. And it's minus toxic shame. Mm. Okay. What makes it costly is it includes guilt. Yeah. What makes it grace is it eliminates shame. Mm. I don't believe that shame, to put this in a theological frame, I don't believe that shame in the way that we're talking about it is of God. Mm. I believe it is by definition toxic. Mm. On the other hand, I do believe that guilt, the prick of conscience for right. both of us, I do believe that is of God. I think that's, there's a still small voice inside of us mm. that that serves us tremendously yeah. and so it won't do to miss that nor will it do to be sunk by shame yeah. it reminds me of something when i talk about guilt when i meet with the young men and women that i meet with each week and we talk about what it was like to be an active addiction mm -hmm. what's striking to me I'll, I'll ask them a question based on my own experience i'll say when you were in the throes of your active addiction maybe getting ready to use going to procure your drug whatever did you have some experience, I'll just call it a still small voice. Yeah. Did you have some experience of conscience coming in and scolding you? And what's amazing is in a room of, let's say, 25 young men and women, most everybody will raise their hand. Wow. There'll be exceptions, but those are the exceptions probably to the rule that prove the rule, actually. And so what's amazing to me is even in active addiction, I certainly know this myself, there would be some part of me that would just go, don't do this. That was the voice of guilt. Yeah. And typically what would happen is that when I used whatever I was addicted to, alcohol and other drugs, 
it would reduce that. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we talk about in the, in the rooms that I work with, yeah. is that most people, when they run into toxic shame, I'll say, how do you deal with that? And they go, I resort to my addiction, mm. whatever it is. If it's a behavioral yeah. addiction or, a, or a, um, uh, a substance addiction, because none of us can tolerate the heightened mm -hmm. anxiety, the heightened stress of yeah. shame for very long. And so anybody that's been addicted, uh, one of the, the top stress researchers in, in the world is John Briere, and he refers to this as, he calls them tension-reducing behaviors, TRBs mm -hmm. for short, tension-reducing behaviors. Well, there's nothing that, that activates more uh, extreme tension in terms of human emotions mm -hmm. than shame. The yeah. research is in, and of all the human emotions, it kicks up our cortisol levels the highest. Right. It makes you the most stressed out. It makes me the most stressed out. And so I'll come up with these TRBs, tension-reducing behaviors. They can literally be behaviors in terms mm. of, we've, we've talked about sexual addiction here, yep. gambling, food, work. Uh, the list goes on in terms of, <laughs> uh, there's a, the list yep. is actually quite infinite. I can turn to those to reduce behavior, television, watching, whatever, yep. uh, uh, internet. And or I can turn to my substance, and whatever substance I'm addicted to, mm. by definition, at least early on, results in tension-reducing behavior, and so it's hard not to do that. So you get this vicious cycle with yeah. shame, which is I'm ashamed, and so I, I take my drug of choice, whether it's a behavior or a substance, mm -hmm. to reduce it, which only exacerbates my shame, because what am I doing? I'm doing shameful behaviors. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm caught in that, so I'll, I'll do more of my addiction, and so there it goes. And so, as I talked about last week, the poor get poorer, the right. poor get poorer, and that's one of the uh, ironies and painful tragedies of addiction, it seems like to me. So, let's, let's unpack cheap grace and, and costly grace here, and then we'll do an exercise. Sounds good. With cheap grace, up. Oh, with costly grace, let me try this differently. With guilt, <laughs> the next slide. I need some help from. <laughs> with, with guilt included, rightful guilt, which now we're talking about costly grace. When I've hurt you, I feel I feel I'm, I feel bad about it, and I'm right. willing to be vulnerable with you. I'm mm. sorry that I hurt you, yeah. uh, and I'm and I'm sorry for your hurt. There's, a, there's an openness, there's a vulnerability. And also with it, as I've talked about, I'll vow to change. I'll vow to change, and I've got to do that with sincerity for it mm. to be real. Mm -hmm. And only then do I come to you with humility and ask for forgiveness. And mm. so I'm affected by what I've done, by the hurt it's been for you. Right. I'm not okay with my having done it. I want to change that. And at that point, I come to you. That would be costly grace. That would be costly mm. grace. And as I, as I talked about before, it keeps the heart open. I'll yeah. move towards you with that. That's costly grace, rightful guilt plus yeah. uh, minus a uh, toxic shame. But what happens with, with uh, when I'm overwhelmed by shame? Mm. With shame, I will have hurt you, but I can't get close to, I can't open myself up mm. to the hurt mm -hmm. uh, that you've been caused, nor can I open myself up to the fact that I'm the perpetrator. Right, yeah. Shame will keep me away from that. It wants, remember, it makes me want to sink into the floor. Right, yeah. There's no way that I'm going to want to hear your pain. There's no way I'm going to be able to be with you in your pain because, after all, I'm the one that caused it. Mm. So that's part of the problem. I can't be vulnerable with you. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the fact that I hurt that, I'm the cause of that, makes me feel bad about me. That's what shame is. I'm a foul-up. I'm 100% foul-up. I didn't foul-up. I'm a foul-up. <laughs> so I'll feel bad about me. So bad that I'll give up. There's, I'll give up trying to change. Because you know what? If I'm defective, why, why bother? Yeah, exactly. We've talked about this before. Yeah. There's, there's no hope. If you're a com complete flub up or me too, then all is lost for yeah. us. So I won't, I won't vow to change. And so the only thing I can do is come to you and ask for cheap grace. Mm. 
I can't come to you sincerely by owning up to it because why? It actually makes me feel more ashamed. Mm. I feel I feel so ashamed by what I've done. Why would I open my heart to you and say, yes, I did it? Mm. And so I'll deny it or I'll minimize it mm. or I'll blame you, but I won't own up to it. Wow. So what we're saying here today is that, and this is in the tradition of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is that there's no forgiveness possible in a state of toxic shame. Mm. Okay. The two are mutually exclusive. If I'm in shame, I cannot really ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And there will, be, there will be no costly grace. There will only be cheap grace, which means there's no guilt involved in that. So, mm. A, you don't feel me getting close to you because I'm not being vulnerable. And B, you have no hope for me to change because I'm not saying I'm going to change. Right. How can I change something I didn't do? Yeah. Right? That's yeah. what shame says. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. <laughs> I'm innocent. That makes sense? Yeah. I was going to say, is that similar? Um, it almost sounds like pride. Yeah, yeah, I, sense. I think it's another way to put it. Pride would be a defense against shame. Yeah. In, the, in a way that I think that you're meaning it. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. What does the Bible say? Pride cometh before a fall. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> right yeah. underneath pride, it's a veneer over my vulnerability, over my shame. Yeah, exactly. And so I'll, this is always confusing to me as a kid because I looked up to adults and looked up to bigger guys on the playground and so on <laughs> like that. They seem like they have it together. Right. It took me a long time to realize that there's, we might say that there's a healthy pride in your yeah. accomplishments and so on. Yeah. The kind of thing that gets us uh, involved and ambitious in our lives. Mm. I think that, uh, I just talk about in terms of healthy self-esteem. Yeah. But you can suspect that there's, that there's a, a fly in the ointment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if it, you can, there's something off with that. If my pride uh, uh, is, like, is like Teflon and it won't yeah. allow for any, uh, uh, any imperfections, mm. Yeah. Any imperfections, and so that kind of pride is a defense against the deeper feeling. And so, what you're seeing, mm. uh, which can manifest as arrogance or, yeah. or imperviousness, I'm impervious to hurting anybody, can itself be a very kind of fragile veneer. Mm. That if you keep going out that, then I'll probably attack you, mm. or I'll or I'll leave you. Is that is that I won't let you mess with my defense because what's underneath that is so overwhelmingly uh, uh, negative to me, and I can't possibly go there. Wow. So part of what we're talking about in this whole series, in fact. Not today and not next week because Bob's going to be in Utah <laughs> next week. But the following week, Austin and Franz, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I didn't let them know about today, so I think everybody was surprised. We'll be coming back in two weeks, not next week, but the following week. And I want to do an exercise, which we've done before, but never in this context, about going right into what it is that people don't want to do. Mm. And we're going to be going right into shame. How do you transform shame? We're, we're introducing it today. This sets up the, the, the uh, podcast-long exercise that we're going to do in two weeks. And honestly, if you don't have any tools for dealing with it, mm. it makes sense to me that you'd resort to pride or some other defense, mm. denial, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Shame silences a crucial message right at the heart of guilt. And then what's the gift of guilt? If we can talk about it that way, I think we can. Guilt makes me sensitive to you. Right. I'm not insensitive. I'm sensitive to you. Guilt humbles me. You talked mm -hmm. about pride. Yeah. The opposite of pride would be humility. Yeah. Guilt keeps my heart open in terms of caring for you. Shame, mm -hmm. shame shuts that down. And we talked about wanting to correct my behavior. Mm -hmm. shame, uh, guilt will lead me to want to change. Mm -hmm. And shame paralyzes that reflex. Mm. I, can't, I can't correct what's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it keeps me isolated. Uh, in fact, it keeps me isolated not only from you as my friend, it keeps yeah. me isolated from myself. And so I end up living with this kind of uh, divided self. Right. 
as I said earlier, active addicts, right in the heart of their addiction, there's some part of them that feels bad about it, but they can't stop it. Mm. Yeah. The, sh- the same as the, sh- the, the same as, <laughs> I've got same and shame going on here. The same is for shame. That is, try to say that four times in a row. Okay. The same is for shame. That is to say that if I feel ashamed, mm-hmm. I can't possibly get close to that. Mm. And unless I'm a sociopath, that is to say that I don't have any feeling yeah. at all of exactly. rightful guilt. I was inside. thinking that too, that mm-hmm. you want to feel some form of guilt because yeah. other than that then yeah i'm guessing you're in trouble if you feel yeah. no yeah. guilt i had somebody a couple of weeks ago say it put it this way uh, in the group he said what about uh sociopaths and narcissists mm. and i said with sociopathy that's the definition of that is a lack of uh a lack of guilt right. a lack of caring a lack yeah. of uh, there's there's no uh there's no remorse yeah. in, in somebody that's sociopathic that's somebody who can kill you and smile about it well, and yeah. go eat lunch right afterwards. It doesn't affect them at all. Mm-hmm. And that's a serious condition. It's a very it's a very small percentage of human beings that have that, but well. it's uh, of concern. There's another one, another uh, 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 disorder or emotional problem that refers to narcissism. There's a lot more evidence of narcissism for sure than sociopathy. But with narcissism, I will manifest with that boastful pride that you were talking about. Mm. But I have the capacity for, for some guilt. Okay. If you dig deep enough, if you dig yeah. deep enough. With a sociopath, you don't. You yeah. don't. There's, Not there's, there nothing, there's nothing there. Wow. Um, hope springs eternal. And I believe that for people that work, for example, in the prison system, uh-huh. that there, there, it is possible for people mm-hmm. to make a change in terms of beginning to feel guilty. Yeah. But I think it takes doing what we're talking about, which is opening your heart. And that can take a long time to do that. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's one step forward and two steps backwards mm. a lot in prison systems. Because mm. you don't think of a prison situation <clears throat> as being something that would encourage vulnerability. Yeah, I've got to exactly. survive. So yeah. I'm going to open my heart. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. So there's a problem built in there. But I think that hope springs eternal for all of us. Mm. And, and so whether it's narcissism or, or sociopathy, we're not talking about that extreme right now. We're talking about you and me, right. Cody, yeah. and what we can do to change our lives. And so one thing I know for sure is that to the extent I'm locked in that kind of pride, mm-hmm. narcissism, uh, not being able to accept guilt, mm-hmm. that's to the extent to where I'm cut off from you and I'm actually cut off to parts of myself. Mm-hmm. So I end up being only only show you the, the prideful part, let's say, right, which yeah. means that's half of Bob or mm-hmm. whatever. That's not, that's not all of me. Okay. okay, so we're at a place now to talk about an exercise for today. And Odie and I are going to do this, and I haven't pre-prepared this with you or me, so we're going to do this on the spot. Sounds good. Can you think of an instance in your own life where we, what we've been talking about in terms of toxic shame, where you felt so ashamed of something that you had said or done or maybe not done, maybe even something that you thought, where you couldn't make yourself vulnerable in order to establish a foundation for forgiveness? Mm-hmm. And by, by that I mean it would be like, I've harmed you and I know that I've done that and I feel so bad about it that I cannot resolve this with you. I can't discuss it with you. That's one piece of forgiveness. There's another piece, which is the flip side of that in some ways. If that's the social side between Odie and me, the personal side is I can't forgive myself either. And so something so shameful that it cuts you off from others and it cuts you off from yourself. So I'd like you to pause for a moment, give you a moment right now to reflect on this. I'm going to do this too. And then Odie and I'll share, God willing. (laughs) <laughs> and the creek don't rise. <laughs> and we'll come right back. Okay. Hmm. You have something? 
Yeah, I think I can give a general example. Why don't you take a stab at it, and I'll share something, too, but I'd love Sounds to hear from good. you first, okay? Yeah. Um, Let me interrupt for just a second. As you listen to Odie and me, be thinking about how this goes for you. I encourage you to write down whatever it is that you've experienced, and if you'd be willing to share... If you'd be willing to share your experience in a way that also protects you, I want to be mindful of that. Uh, I want that for you and me too, Odie, to mm, share something yeah. so that, because we're talking, if we're going to be vulnerable, the Latin root of vulnerability is the word vulnus, which means wound. So mm. we're going right into the heart of a wound. And I want us to, uh, you know, you're here with friends with Austin and Franz and Odie and Bob, but I also would like you to be protective of yourself in a, in a positive way. But if you're willing to share how this has gone for you, uh, uh, or how you respond to what Odie and I share, mm -hmm. I encourage you to, to uh, send in a comment, and Austin will moderate that, okay? So the question is, can you think of an instance where shame shut you off from forgiveness? And start with you, Odie. Okay, yeah, I uh, sometimes where, you know, you're mm -hmm. married, if you're married anyways, you're going to have arguments with your wife. Mm -hmm. So those spring up. And the only thing I could think of right now was um, there's there's moments and times where I do have a, a disagreement with my wife. And I know that I was at fault for the argument that sprung up. Yeah. yeah. And like we've mentioned before, the pride, um, the shame of knowing that I was wrong. Yeah. I want to say I'm sorry yeah. for doing that, yeah. but... Yeah. Like that shame yeah. side of me is just like, yeah. no, well, you know what? Here's what she did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't say sorry first. You should wait for her to say sorry. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a thought here. Yeah, and go I want for you it. Continue. Is if any of you don't know this experience, then you're lying. <laughs> I, I actually chuckled as you were talking because I identify with it so strongly. Yeah. And inti anybody in intimate relationship with loved ones, family, friends, husbands, yep. wives, mm -hmm. sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, all of us know this, that you're tapping into yeah, a universal, exactly. and I love what you're saying. So I want you to continue. I just wanted to say that... Uh, uh, take back my comment about liars. That wasn't very nice. I just, I'd like to just include all of us. You're not alone, my friend. Okay, all right. Keep going, please. Yeah. But uh, that was that's pretty much the ending of it. It's mm -hmm. that you know, uh, a part of me wants to say that still small voice says you need to say sorry first. Mm -hmm. You know, because you know you were in the wrong. But the mm -hmm. prideful, the shameful part mm -hmm. of it um, keeps you away from yeah. opening up. And saying, you know what, mm. just, it's a little weird. At, it was a weird at first for me, mm. but mm. practicing more and more, uh, it helped to get to that point where, like, okay, take a deep breath. Here we go. I'm sorry for mm. what I did. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, yeah. but. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, I was going to ask you, what yeah. do you do? And, and that you're talking about it, is that if you think about it for just a second, this is Odie's brain yeah. on shame. <laughs> This is Bob's brain on shame, is that shame will shut us down. Yeah. And so the thing that you know, there's some part of your brain, some part of you, that's saying, I need to say I'm sorry to my wife. Yeah, exactly. But it's overridden by the shame. Mm -hmm. It's a good example. We talk about how the frontal cortex, which is the part of you that's moral right, and yeah. realizes that you're wrong here. Yeah. You started it. <laughs> you started the argument. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> is that is that that part, the frontal cortex, is actually hijacked by the 
by in between our ears, the midbrain, which mm-hmm. is where what we're talking about here in terms of where shame resides, mm-hmm. it will it will shut down the frontal cortex, and so you can know it, but you can't act on it. Yeah. And and I liked how you put it. You just you just say you take a deep breath, take yeah. a step back, and with some time, I was going to ask you how that goes because with time, what will happen mm. generally, not always, but generally, is that there'll be a relaxation of the midbrain, mm. and the frontal cortex can come back on mind, and you can do what was unthinkable five minutes before. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Uh, it, I still struggle with it, but you know, no, nobody's perfect, obviously. But um, definitely a lot better than before. And what I've also noticed too is that uh, it it shifted as well. You know, at first um, I wasn't like that. My wife was more that way. She would apologize first, yeah, yeah, even though. I was the one at fault. She would still be mm-hmm. the first one to mm-hmm. admit what she mm-hmm. she yeah, attributed to the yeah. to the argument, and uh, so that me seeing that from her, that mm-hmm. I started to see, okay, mm-hmm. I need to start doing that because that's just mm-hmm. the right thing to do. You know, that's the um, what was it the not the cheap grace, but the other grace. The costly grace. The costly yeah, grace. Yeah. So. I love what you're saying. It feels like such an honoring of your wife. Um, I love the the root of the word angels. I thought your wife was such an angel, <laughs> and it really comes from it comes from the uh, the Greek root uh, angelos, which just is a messenger. Hmm. She's like a messenger of a deeper truth, hmm. of what we're calling costly grace, which would be. I like that. Can, yeah, I do too. She yeah. was she and, and she modeled it for you, and I love how you just honored her in that right yeah. now. You honor her by naming the fact that she modeled that for you as long as she did. And if you've got your eyes and your heart open, eventually it begins to transform you. This is what mm. happens in, yeah. in, our, in our loving relationships, ideally. And you began to risk doing something that might have been more alien. Yeah. I think in some ways it's gender related. I, can, I, I don't think that we uh, boys growing into manhood have much modeling necessarily for no. taking, for, taking uh, for saying I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. We talk about this with the men that I meet with. It's okay to say that you're pissed off and hit somebody, <laughs> but you don't admit that you're sad. Yeah. Uh, you don't admit that you're afraid, and you never admit that you're ashamed. Mm. And just like you just don't do that. And I'm not saying that that's easy for girls growing into womanhood. Mm. I think, and I, my guess is that times change, but relatively speaking, I think all of us have a difficulty with it. And I think in some ways boys are socialized in such a way that to go to these more vulnerable, vulnerable m- wound, mm. m- these more vulnerable emotions, is so counterintuitive, yeah. and it, in your case, it took somebody, in this case, your wife, who could model being vulnerable, and you began to risk being that with her, and it's transforming you, and yeah. it continues. It's mm-hmm. not ever done, is it? The same no, for me. The same for me. Very well um, put. Yeah. yeah. No, I really appreciate you sharing that. I hope that those of you that are watching can find some relatedness to what Odie said. Mm-hmm. My earlier comment about liar, liar, pants on fire <laughs> is that he's talking about a universal. He's talking about a universal for yeah. sure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I feel similar. I don't. I, f- I feel like it'll just be reinforcement of what you just said. Yeah. I know that for me, uh, early in recovery from uh, a growing addiction and chemical dependency mm-hmm. um, on both alcohol as well as sedative medications, that was where I was at the end. I was out of control, and what I couldn't handle, especially from loved ones, those closest to me, was uh, any guilt tripping. Mm. I should actually say. Uh, shame tripping. <laughs> it's kind of a new word, shame tripping, because there are those that shame tripped me. Yeah. And in hindsight, I can look at this, you know, your wife is going to shame trip you or mind me mm-hmm. if they're scared. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very understandable. Yeah. They're scared because 
because who am I married to or, or what's going to happen? In my case with addiction, is Bob going to die? You know, mm -hmm. it's threatening to the very core of the relationship. And so uh, uh, we talked earlier about how, how pride can be a defense against shame. Uh, shame tripping, blaming somebody, coming on heavy with judgment can be a defense against the vulnerability, which is I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death of yeah. what's happening to our relationship. And so early on for me, um, I was very vulnerable to shame from the outside. And part of what made me particularly vulnerable is that I was already a shame pod <laughs> in Toto. <laughs> I was just one big shame ball and I felt horrible. I, I've shared it here before, but I felt so ashamed that I was sure you were judging me. Mm, yeah. And so if you did anything to confirm that, which would be like blink your eyes every five minutes or something, <laughs> that was to see yeah. now he doesn't, you know, he's judging me. So I mean, it didn't take you doing squat <laughs> for me to judge myself. And that's really what shame will do. It's like a black hole mm -hmm. or the, the Bermuda Triangle. It will suck everything down mm -hmm. into it. Yeah. And so my shame made me extremely vulnerable to any tone of voice, um, any comment at all. And so I readily owned that I was shame prone for sure. Mm. And what followed up on that shame was just feeling like I was blowing apart into fag fragments. And so there's no way I could get close to guilt. Yeah. And it took me the longest time. It took me about nine months mm. uh, of early recovery to move through what is referred to as post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which means I was like a roller coaster in terms of emotions. And one of the prominent emotions for me was anger. Mm. I was irritable a lot. Mm. And it ties back into your comment about pride. Mm. Anger is another defense against shame. Why is Bob so angry? Yeah. Well, because to be tender and vulnerable and then to admit to him being wrong is completely undoable for him. Wow. So he'll just go around being pissed off. And so I bit off a lot of people's heads during that time. Mm. Not happy about that. And, yeah. and as you said with your wife, Odie, for me, it began to relax for me. Uh, in my relationship to Colleen, relationship to my daughter, and relationship to people that were close to me in my life, I began to ad ad be able to admit to it. Something that helped me, and I talked about this today in our group at, at Beginnings, is for my own, my own involvement was being involved and engaged in support groups. Mm, um, yeah. And uh, for me, that was AA, uh, the 12 step groups provide a format. I also was involved at the same time with refuge recovery, which is mindfulness based. Mm -hmm. Smart recovery is another resource. There are a lot of resources, Al Anon. There are a lot of resources. And what's common across all of these groups is that you have to be able to talk about what you did wrong. Mm -hmm. The expectation, if you come into group and tell a prideful story, you'll get shut down. Yeah. Or if you minimize, in the case of addiction, if you minimize that or minimize the effect it has on people that are in your life, the social support is for you to be real, to be, be vulnerable. Mm. And doing that meeting after meeting, several meetings a week for a period of months and then years, right up to the present, it made it possible to do something that I'd never done before, which is to be vulnerable with others, mm. with, my, with my faults. Yeah. And to begin to realize, you know, there's... Um, Years ago, I studied ancient Greek, and I was in a seminary, and we were studying the, the language of the New Testament, which was written in ancient Greek. Right. And we learned the word uh, that's translated in the New Testament. In fact, it's attributed to the words of Jesus, the word for perfect. Hmm. Perfect. So, for example, Jesus says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting little caveat here, and this is what I want to get to. Uh, the Greek word is teleos, teleos for perfect. And in the context of ancient Greece, they had an interesting meaning. And so when I, I asked the group today, I said, what do you guys think of when you think of perfect? Perfect is without, and people said, well, without sin, without blemish, without mm -hmm. imperfection. It means to be uh, all shiny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that's true. That's true. When you think of perfect, perfect means 
not imperfect. Yeah. And it's just very interesting in the ancient Greek understanding, which is the, the language that, for example, St. Paul used in his, right. in his epistles in, in the New Testament. Those are written in, in Koine Greek, ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. And he used the term perfect mm -hmm. as, as well as the gospel writers. And when they use that term, the word teleos means complete. Mm. It's complete. And so perfection in the sense of completion. Right. And so whether it's attributed to Christ or the New Testament or just an understanding, it's right. a very counter understanding to our tip. When you and I use perfect, we use it in a way that's understandable. But that's not the ancient uh, uh, Greek concern. And so it mm. leads to a misinterpretation of some central passages, yeah. for example, in the New Testament, for example. <laughs> and the idea of to be, to be complete would mm. be to be doing what you do with your wife, mm -hmm. which is to be complete with your wife is to come in and to be, I'll use the word imperfect in all the ways that you are. Mm -hmm. And the greater perfection, the greater completeness is for you to be vulnerable in the mm -hmm. mistakes you've made. Yeah. Submit or surrender those to her humbly mm -hmm. and then to have her engage with you ideally in a reconciling or a forgiving kind of way. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that's perfect sense. That's different. That's yeah, great. perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. was the Greek word? Teleo? Teleos. Teleo sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> makes perfect in a teleos <laughs> sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a way to, to talk about perfection in a way that invites all of us. If it's true that the latest study says that 90% of us have at least one behavioral addiction going mm -hmm. on right now, one out of four of us have a substance, a clinically, we're clinically addicted to a substance, a psychoactive substance, mm -hmm. whether it's alcohol, uh, uh, nicotine, or other drugs. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one out of four. Americans over the age of 12 are clinically addicted, which mm -hmm. is like mind-boggling. Yeah. But what's even more mind-boggling is that 90% of this acknowledge that we have at least one behavioral addiction in addition to that. Mm -hmm. So I can be addicted to alcohol and also have multiple behavioral addictions. Wow. And so for all in the soup together, this latter understanding of perfection really pertains. Mm -hmm. Is that what would it be like for me to begin to own up to what I've done to you as a function of addiction? Mm. Because if I don't let that out, if we don't reconcile you with your wife, me with mine, those mm -hmm. with our loved ones, then we're left with shame and secrecy. Mm -hmm. And what do I do to feel better when I'm ashamed and secretive? <laughs> what do you do? Well, chances are that we resort to tension-reducing behaviors. Yeah. In any other word, that's addiction, yeah. addicted behaviors. And so you can see the vicious cycle, and the only way to break that is to break it. Mm -hmm. And so it could be helpful to have an expansive notion of perfection. Mm -hmm. We mean perfection this way. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a final image here that I want to bring up right now. And it's of the sword and the stone. You all may be familiar with it. It's the myth of Excalibur from the Arthurian legends. And uh, if you watched any kind of depiction, including Disney, <laughs> of the Excalibur. King Arthur, he's boy Arthur, mm. uh, is given the task of removing a sword from a stone. In fact, whoever does this will obtain magical powers. It's a myth. Mm -hmm. And as the story goes, he was able to put his hands on this as a boy and do something that no other grown man had been able to do, literally to pull the sword Excalibur out of the stone. This image came to me in the last few weeks as a... Um, as applicable to this conversation. Mm. And the way that I understand this is what if we would look at guilt as the sword? Guilt is the sword. And the stone, what it turns our hearts to stone is shame. Mm. And is there a way, we're talking about costly grace, we're talking about you with your wife, we're talking about me with mine. Is there a way that I can pull the sword out of the stone mm. 
That is, own the guilt that I have. I've got the chills as I'm talking about because it runs so deep and pull it out of the stone that would only harden my heart. Hard, mm. The way that you talked about your process, Odie, yeah. is identical for me and for our viewers. Is there a way to redeem ourselves by pulling the sword? That's, what, that's what's rightful. That's what we owe our loved ones. But not to be sunk by the stone because the stone will pull us down to the depths. Yeah. And so I've got a homework assignment for all of you who are viewing today. Being ever the teacher, Bob. <laughs> Can we commit this week? I really did. Odie, your example is a perfect example. Can I commit to trying to pull the sword out of the stone this week with someone that is close to me? As you put it earlier, mm -hmm. in our closest relationships, it's impossible to rub up against each other <laughs> and not uh, have at least many ruptures, M-I-N-I -I ruptures. They happen all the time, these little ruptures. Yeah. And the only way to repair them is to own up to them. So we're talking yep. about repairing these ruptures that happen inevitably in our most important relationships. Mm. Quick aside here, when I've had clients over the years come to see me, couples come to see me, and they say, you know, the only, problem I the only person I have a problem with is with my husband. <laughs> or my wife, <laughs> and my response inside is, well, duh, because it doesn't matter with people that don't matter to us, or it yeah. matters far less. Yeah. So if it's the grocery clerk, I'm far less likely to get upset about that mm -hmm. in most circumstances than I am by somebody who's much closer to me. Yep. The exception to that would, would be if I never express my anger at people that I love, then I'm liable to displace it onto the grocery clerk or the gas station attendant, or you can go down the list. And uh, I think of the image of kicking the dog. It's a gross image, but it's like, yeah. you know, the, the kind of stereotypical image of somebody kicking the dog who's do nothing, yeah. uh, 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 do nothing of that kind of abuse, owing to the fact that the person has no place to vent the anger. Mm -hmm. And so with that exception, then the people that yank our strings, the people that really get us going, get us activated emotionally, are those closest to us. And so with those, we have plenty of opportunity to do Bob Weathers' homework this week, which is, <laughs> Could I take a step in the direction of what Odie suggested today, or what Bob suggested, which is pulling the sword of guilt out of the stone of shame? Mm. So what we introduced last week, which is using shame as a signal to the self, and what we talked about this week in terms of transforming shame, and the only way to transform it is to understand it. Mm. And to understand it means that we have to divide up shame from its toxic aspect, its unhealthy aspect, which pulls us down. That's the stone to differentiate that from the sword, which is related to rightful guilt. Guilt will connect me with you. It does mm -hmm. you with your wife. Yeah, It's being able to say I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. That's owning up to feeling guilty, feeling bad about that. We should feel bad. Right. I, the example I have is if this, if this is a hot stove, I want to have feedback, such as my hand moves away from it. It should hurt. Yeah. Well, guilt is the same way. It should hurt you to hurt your wife. Mm -hmm. It yeah. should hurt me to hurt those that I love as well. And so that pain, there's no way to, to sugarcoat that. Guilt hurts. Mm. But that's a whole different level than shame strangles off the life impulse. It'll mm -hmm. shut us down. We'll freeze. And so is there a way for me to use rightful guilt as a signal to healing? Mm -hmm. And when toxic shame comes in, what can I do to heal that? Well, that will be our next conversation. It won't be next week, so this isn't literally accurate. Franz, I apologize to you. It'll be next next week. <laughs> next week squared. <laughs> two weeks from now, we'll be looking at self-forgiveness practice. Because what I want to do, in addition to what you're talking about, Odie, which is reconciling with, with in this case, your wife mm. by owning up to your responsibility, that is to take uh, ownership for your guilt. Right. I want to find a way, then, because I think it begs this question in our, in our conversations here. 
what do I do with the shame, that big stone that mm. the sword is locked into? What do I do about that? And I feel like they're almost like a surgeon with a scalpel, which I know a lot about with my shoulder these last <laughs> few weeks. I've got scars over my shoulder from people digging around in there. Well, hang with me. Is that like with a surgeon with a scalpel, there's got to be skillful means by which we can go right into the heart of shame, mm. which is the most loathsome emotion to all of us human beings. Mm. There's got to be skillful ways that we can move into it to actively change or transform shame. And that's where we're going to go uh, in two weeks, okay? So that's, good. that's today's presentation. Any final comments from you, sir? Uh, looking forward to the self-forgiveness practice. Me too. So, Me too. Me yeah. too. It's my favorite part of all of this work. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it, it has the potential for changing. I'll say this much, and I've mentioned this before here. For the last half a dozen years, starting back June 1st, 2012, I've practiced what I'm going to be doing, uh, uh, what I'll be sharing in our, in our podcast. I practice that uh, almost every morning. There have been mm -hmm. some gaps in there, but almost every morning. And so, for example, this morning, as with most mornings, part of my quiet time includes just five minutes that's focused on what we're going to talk about here. Mm. So we'll be spending an entire uh, hour podcast session kind of doing and then unpacking this practice, but it only takes five minutes and I do it every day. Mm. You're going to love the irony of this and you'll get this, is that most of the time it's with those closest to me. So for example, the biggest bulk of my self-forgiveness practice, which involves asking for forgiveness as well as granting it, not only mm. to the person who may have wronged us, but also to ourselves, who've done the wronging, uh, uh, the biggest percentage of that is the, those, with those closest to me. Mm. This morning it was with my wife, yeah. and probably three days ago it was with my wife. Mm. And that's as it should be. It's those people that are going to be the ones that we need to kind of keep. I, the way I think it is keeping the pipes cleaned out. I want right. to keep that cleaned out. And so <laughs> I do this every day, and I'm going to introduce something with the hope that, you know, if you're working out, yeah. and let's say that you and I want to get stronger, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I introduced this today in the, in the group at beginnings, is that there's a man there who is obviously uh, really attentive to his body and his strength and so on, he works out regularly. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, if I came to you and I said, I'd like to work out and build some muscles and I'd like to just work out once a month, he just burst into laughing. He go, yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, I feel that around what we're talking about is the practice that you're talking about yeah. with your wife, it requires weekly processing to yeah. keep things to mm -hmm. keep things worked out. There's a family therapist up in Washington, John Gottman, and I believe it's attributed to him, so I'm going to give him credit for this. <laughs> he says there's three things that, that every couple, every committed relationship, you can include family relationships here, there's three things that you should do on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. He says one is to share positives. I appreciate this about you. Yeah. The other is to share uh, constructive criticism. I need us to work on this. This isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. And the third is to share paranoid fears. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah. It's a thing. Talk about vulnerability. Oh, you know, I'm right. afraid that you don't love me anymore. <laughs> that kind of thing is a paranoid fear. To air that so that stuff yeah. doesn't get clotted up in there so that you can keep the river flowing. And so in that spirit, to Very do good. what you talked about really with good. your wife yeah. is very much a part of that. How do I keep things cleared out? You know, you hurt my feelings. I think I hurt your feelings. You know, I'm worried about being vulnerable because I'm not sure that you'll love me if I expose mm -hmm. my vulnerabilities for what I did yeah. and then have her, have her dispense grace. And so we're talking about that in relationships and we'll be talking about that also with ourselves. Mm -hmm. What can I do to keep myself cleared out? And this practice that we'll be introducing next week is something you can practice. And back to the metaphor of building muscles, it won't happen if you do it once a year or mm -hmm. once a millennium. It could make a difference if you do it daily. Yeah. 
or most, most often daily, and I am like exhibit A of that because I can guarantee you that if you met me six years ago, I would not be able to tell you my story as I'm able to do it now. Mm. And that's attributable to a lot of things, support groups, people that love me, people like Angela that send me really affirming cards and have so much love. I so appreciate that. These people, your wife, people yeah. in our lives that really matter to us, that support us. And also, I think, are developing skillful means, which would be the practice we develop. I think that if we can develop positive habits that are some combination of the best of spiritual traditions and the best of what contemporary psychology has to offer and practice these daily, it gets to where it transforms you almost at a cellular level. Mm. Just like yeah. working out does, this is like a workout for the soul. And so wow. we'll be introducing that next week. I'm really looking forward. This is the high point of this whole series for me, what we're doing next week. So. Sounds good. I, okay. not, I said next week. I meant next, next week. Yeah, next, next. So we're going to see you in two weeks. Any final questions, comments from our audience? I know that you were wowed by today's presentation, hence the <laughs> relative silence. But I don't want you to give up. <laughs> Nor does Austin. So you can write Austin. You can write me through uh, Facebook. You can you can uh, write leave a question there. You can also um, uh, uh, access our YouTube videos. We've archived now about thirty of, of these uh, podcasts. I'm very appreciative to France and Austin and now Odie for uh, moving us forward with these. We have a whole archive of really rich material. I introduced this today to the the men that I was meeting with in the group at beginnings, and. Um, there's, a, there's a turnover because people get better and they move on. And this group wasn't aware of this podcast. And uh, 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 they were excited about the fact that they can access this no matter where they move back to, wherever they're from in the country. Mm -hmm. And they can access this online. And there really is a lot that we've covered during this time. We've had guests on here. We've had regular guests in the last week with the last uh, number of weeks with Odie. We've had other guests come in that are quite expert. And then you guys have engaged with me, so we have a dialogue ongoing. And so I encourage you to, to review, uh, review this and other podcasts on, on, uh, online at YouTube or at Ask Addiction Specialist or at Beginnings Treatment Center. All of those have repositories, and you can submit questions there. Finally, let me suggest that you go, uh, you could, you're welcome to go to my website, which is just basically a clearinghouse for information on addiction recovery. The whole thing is dedicated to it. And uh, I'd love for you to access that. And you can, you can uh, send me questions there. You can send comments and questions to me directly from my website. It's www.drbobweathers.com. And uh, there's a contact me portion. In fact, you can get my address and do as Angela did, which is you can send me cards. No, I really appreciate this. And it came to my address that's online. So thank you all. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Odie. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Franz. Thank you, Austin. And um, happy birthday to all of us. Yeah. I really want to leave with this idea that what we're talking about doing, and you talked about this in your relationship, we're talking about opening up the gifts that we are and being able to free those up. And the thing about this kind of information is that it does free us. If shame enslaves us, if shame paralyzes me, what will free me is, is transformative information. And what we've set up these last several weeks with you and me, Odie, mm -hmm. leading to what we'll be doing in two weeks, is beginning to practice something that will liberate us from enslavement. It liberates me from uh, uh, what I'm doing by these kinds of conversations and this kind of practice mm -hmm. is I'm reducing relapse risk. Mm -hmm. And how am I doing that? It's not any kind of mysterious thing. Yeah. If I can reduce stress, and, and including stress about, about being imperfect and not knowing when mm -hmm. somebody to find that, that's just... That's just cash in the bank. Yeah. Anything I can reduce stress is going to reduce relapse risk. And so that's what we're doing here. And the good news is that what that does is that as relapse risk 
and addiction are reduced, it liberates me more and more. Mm -hmm. For you to be Odie, for me to be Bob, and in that spirit, then let's all uh, bring our gifts to the world, okay, by uh, increasing liberation. <laughs> Thank you all. You all take care, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye for now. Mm -hmm.